The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. So I don't know if you've noticed, but humans seem to have the amazing ability to believe in the reality of very serious things while not taking them very seriously at all. We can believe in the reality of very serious things, but not take them very seriously at all. How many of you heard that uh, you should not text and drive? Okay. You know what? I I have a whole bunch of stats here. I'm not even going to read them because you know what happens. People text and drive and what happens? They get in car accidents and die. Okay. Everyone in America knows this. Okay. Evidently, some people still text and drive. Okay. I won't ask for a show of hands, but maybe just wink at me. Come on, I know, I know you're there. I see you. Okay? We still text and drive. This is a serious thing. It could kill you. It kills thousands of people every year. We believe this serious thing, but we just don't take it very seriously. It won't happen to me. Humans have an amazing ability to do this. Believe in the reality of serious things, not take them seriously at all. We could go through lots of examples, but, but here's maybe the most serious. How many of you believe that you are going to die? Uh, yeah, right? Um, even in times of war and suffering, the correlation between birth and death doesn't change. <laughs> you, you're going to die. I don't need to be a prophet one day. No. You're going to die. Um, you're going to lose everything. You're going to die. You're, you're going to stand before God and answer for the life that you've borrowed from him. That's a very serious thing. How seriously do we take it? Do we live like that's real? I feel like in, in the modern era, we're trying to put that as, aside as, as far as we can. We want to pretend like we're all young and young forever. Um, we don't really take seriously the reality of what's coming. Now, sometimes reality will smack us in the face, right? You get that bad news from the doctor. But for those of you in that moment, do you remember the freshness of being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to die? And it weighed on you, and you thought, ha! Huh. And somehow before up your whole life, you'd never really <laughs> given it much thought. Um, or someone you love. They die. We, funerals are amazing moments because it's like we stare over the brink and go, oh yeah, we knew this, but we forgot. Look what the psalmist says, Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days. That's a prayer. Lord, teach us to number our days. What does that mean? Remind me that I'm going to die. Why? so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Here's the reality. You can't really live the way you're supposed to live now without a knowledge that you're going to die later. Taking those serious thoughts about later seriously helps you really live now. So the question is, um, are you living like you're going to die? And even bigger for us today in this passage, if you're a Christian are you really living like you're going to rise again? 
Are you living not only like you're going to die, but are you living like you know you're going to be resurrected? Just imagine, if you had that conviction, I mean, I'm, I'm sure many of you are like, yeah, I, I believe that, right? Don't text and drive, I knew that. I'm going to rise again, I knew that too, I believe that. But what would be different in your life if you had this deep conviction of like, yeah, death won't hold me down, I'll get up again. What might change for you? Think about it. We're, conti- we're continuing our study through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And this church had a very serious belief that they didn't take nearly seriously enough. They believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They did. They believed it. We saw that last week. But though they believed that Jesus rose, they denied that they would actually rise. They did not believe that they would rise. And scholars are thinking they're probably lost in the philosophy of their day, They had this real dichotomy between kind of the spirit and the flesh, and the flesh was bad, and at death you're set free, and you're just a ghost forever. Amen. And Paul says, no, 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 no. And he's telling them, you need to take these beliefs more seriously. The belief that Jesus rose from the dead, and the reality that we will too. So so I realize maybe we're not identical to the Corinthians, Uh, Maybe you're sitting here and you do believe that you will rise. Uh, Or maybe maybe you're here and you're not even sure Jesus rose. That's okay. We're really glad you're here. So maybe we're not like the Corinthians in their convictions, but maybe we are like them in another way. Uh, It's basically this. Couldn't we take it more seriously? Couldn't we have the reality of these things, these serious things that we believe, couldn't we have them grip us a little more, own us a little more? change the way we think and feel and live. I mean, in this passage, Paul wants you to be so uh, just inflamed with the reality of your own resurrection that it changes everything for you. In fact, he's really saying you can't live the Christian life you're supposed to live unless your own resurrection, you just can smell it right around the corner and you're looking forward to it. And I think, at least for me, maybe for you too, that's something we tend to forget about. We don't take very seriously. So we're going to look at it this morning. Uh, Three major thoughts that we're going to build our time around. Number one is the importance of taking our resurrection seriously. It's it's really important. (laughs) The importance of taking it seriously. Second, the point of our resurrection. Paul wants to show us that your resurrection is not just like a sideline thing here. It gets right at the heart of everything God is doing. So the importance of our resurrection, the point of the resurrection, and then we want to think a little bit about the power that our conviction about our resurrection can have in our lives. The power of the resurrection in our lives. So the importance of it, the point of it, the power of it, okay? So here we go. Verses 12 to 19, we want to think about the importance of the resurrection, Look at verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So you see what the Corinthians are doing. They believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and yet what are some of them at least saying? No one else is going to rise from the dead. It was only Jesus. And Paul is going to go after that hardcore. What does he say in verse 13? If there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. So he's like, all right, take your belief seriously. There's no resurrection. No resurrection. Well, if there's no resurrection, Jesus didn't rise either. You can't take, Paul's saying, you can't take Jesus' resurrection and make it some uh, symbolic-y thing out there. You know, modern theologians love to do this. They don't like miracles. And so they think, well, God gives us a resurrection of the heart. I have happy thoughts about vague spiritual things. Um, And Paul's like, that is total, what word can I use safely? That's fooey, baloney, rubbish. That's nonsense. If there's no resurrection, Christ didn't rise either. And then Paul says, all right, let's take this seriously. No resurrection, Christ didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, well, we have problems. Look at verse 14. If Jesus didn't rise, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is vain. So you you think you had a moment when you heard something about Jesus and you believed it and you prayed and you trusted God and you felt God's presence and you feel like he's moving in your life and you, you ask him about how to live and you feel like he's a presence and a reality in your life and he gives you hope and joy and peace and you go to church and you know other Christians and you pray together and you have each other over. Well, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, You are living in a sorry, pitiful joke. That is all a fraud. Not that anything you felt or loved or experienced or enjoyed or partook in or blah, 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 it's it's trash. It's a joke. If Christ didn't rise, everything we've ever done from the Bible, any time we've ever spent in here, anything we've ever shared together is, is a lie. It's not true if Christ didn't rise. Verse 15, Paul continues, he says, we'd even be found to be misrepresenting God because we've been saying Jesus rose according to the scriptures. And guess what? There's no resurrection. So what does that make us? Liars. We're lying to the world. It's so popular in our day, right? What does the modern mind say about religion? The modern mindset's not worried about whether religion is true or not. It's worried about whether or not it helps you feel nice about yourself, right? Does it work for you? Does it work for you? Uh, and Paul says, that's fairy tales. That's fairy tales. What we say matters. And Jesus Christ either did or did not rise from the dead. And if he did rise from the dead, that takes you one direction. And if he did not rise from the dead, that takes you another direction. And the direction you should go if he did not rise from the dead is that Christianity is a lie. It's totally a lie. So don't even play the Jesus is a good teacher thing or we learn some things. It's burn the book. We're liars. And man, I wish modern theologians would read this because they want to deny the historical resurrection and then play Christianity. And, and Christianity is saying, if there's no historical resurrection, there is no Christianity. We'd be liars. Verse 17, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if Christ has not been raised, um, he continues on, he says, why would you believe that you've been forgiven of your sins? Why would you believe it? Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Uh, we'll remember the, the heart of the gospel we looked at last week, right? Jesus Christ came, 
according to the scriptures, and he died for our sins. And we remember that the Christian God is a God of holiness and justice. He's a God of justice, which means he can't, let, he can't ever sweep evil under the rug. He will always bring justice. And in one sense, we know we love that and we need that. Don't you need a God who's going to bring justice one day? Otherwise, injustice wins. Chaos wins. There's no hope. There's no meaning. We need a God of justice, and there is one. Of course, the problem with a God of justice is, you know, I could point at the justice I need. What's the old thing about pointing? There's a couple fingers pointing back. What about the justice I deserve? And so God has answered this problem of him being holy and perfectly just and making me justified, remember that word, right with him, through Jesus Christ, the substitute. Jesus came and died for our sins. So when he died on the cross, he wasn't just another, oh, the Romans crucified somebody else. He was actually the son of God and he was doing something epic. He was actually paying for your sins, for my sins. And the way we know that's real, the way we get God's stamp of approval is, he rose from the dead. That's how we know it worked. That's our receipt, proving it's been paid. He's alive. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, guess, that, guess what that means about your sins? They're still on your head. They haven't been paid for. And there's a God of justice out there lurking, waiting for you. Despair. There's no forgiveness if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Paul's really pounding it, isn't he? Verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. How many of you have been to a funeral of one you loved who you knew was a Christian? And you said, we grieve with hope. And what do we say? All sorts of stuff. We're going to see him again. They're in a better place. For some of you, you've lost people close who are Christians, and that's precious to you. Well, if there's no resurrection, <laughs> you're just swimming in naive dreams. It's bogus. It's false. You're not going to see them again. They're not in a better place. There's, there's no hope that those relationships continue. It's over. Despair, it's over. All you had was all you're getting. It's done. Do you see what Paul's saying? Verse 19, he says, if, if the only hope we have is in this life, while we're saying we hope for the next one, what does he call us? We're of all people to be pitied. We are the, the, the corner idiot hoping based on nothing. It's fool's gold if Christ didn't rise. Imagine, imagine a car. You've always want, you got any car people in here? You wanted a new car, and you, you, you bought this car, and the paint job is beautiful, and the interior is perfect, and it has every high-tech, up-to-date awesomeness you can dream of, the tires, the suspension, it's all fantastic. And you look under the hood, and behold, under the hood there is nothing. It has everything but the engine. So in other words, this car, it looks pretty, and maybe you can pump up the base on the inside, but it's not even going somewhere slowly. It's not going anywhere. And that car without the engine is Christianity without a resurrection. It's not moving. The resurrection is the power of our faith. Paul gave us all these things that were hopeless without a resurrection. Thank you. You read my mind. 
Paul gives us all these things that are hopeless without a resurrection. Well, flip it on its head. Without a resurrection, our faith, our experience of God is a joke. But with the resurrection, guess what? It's true. You have new life in God. You've been born again. You have his Holy Spirit. The resurrection power of Jesus has given you new life now as a child of God. It's real. He's alive. Two, instead of us being liars, we have the greatest truth there is. Guess what? Jesus rose from the dead, and it changes everything, and we stand on truth. And not only that, we know from the resurrection, when, you're, when your sin condemns you, and you feel guilty again, and you wonder if God could truly love you, because you messed it up again, and you, you see a little bit of your flaws, and you want to despair, guess what you can look to? Jesus rose, which means I'm clean. I'm safe. I'm saved. He's alive. And when you miss those people who have died in the Lord and and they're gone now, and you can remember because of the resurrection, guess what? I will see them again, and it will be better than it ever was before. He's alive. We will rise. And when you suffer, come on, we suffer. Gosh, in this church, we suffer. When you suffer, you can know this is just a limited time thing. It's only for this. And at one point, guess what? I rise. Paul wants them to take this view seriously. Listen, how important is the literal resurrection both of Jesus Christ and of you and of me? How important is it to the faith? It's everything. It's the power of the faith. New life. He's alive. Have you gripped it in your heart? We will rise again because he rose The second thing to see here is the point of the resurrection. The point of the resurrection. So we we can kind of believe, yeah, I'll rise again, but we need to see where it fits in and see how epic it is to what it means to be a Christian. How important. Look at verse 20. Paul writes, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now what on earth is a first fruit? It's kind of a big theme. Biblically, you could look it all up. Let's not miss the main point. First fruit means more fruit, okay? The whole point of a first fruit of the harvest is you got a little bit, and what are you anticipating? More, lots more. So you see about Jesus' resurrection, it's a first fruit. What does that mean? It was never meant to be this one-time thing only for him. You got a little bit of fruit in him. What's coming next? More. Uh, if you imagine, if you imagine um, a tidal wave roaring down through a dam holding a river back and just exploding that dam so that the water just flows everywhere, that's Jesus' resurrection. He rose because one day when he comes back, guess what's going to happen? an explosion, a harvest of resurrections. His people will rise from the dead just as he did. Now, Paul's really saying here that this has been the plan from the beginning. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
The Bible sees the world really through two representatives. Adam was the first representative. What did he do? Okay. He was made, he was made good. He was made to fellowship with God, and then he chose rebellion. He chose corruption. He chose pride. He chose to replace God with himself. And what followed? God warned it. The wages of sin is what? You eat of this tree, you shall surely die. He sinned, it brought death. It makes sense consequentially. You, you leave the author of life, you get death. You leave good, you get evil. You leave purity, you get twistedness. There's also the penalty, the penalty of death. In Adam, all sin and all die. And this one comes as a bonus when you're born. Guess what you are in? Adam. My kids and I joke around because, you know, we suspect that Adam was forgiven and is in heaven. And, you know, there's no sin in heaven, so this probably can't happen. But can you imagine walking by Adam in heaven and just being like... <laughs> and, and he's just like... And one day you're sitting around the campfire and you're like, you know every awful thing that ever happened was kind of because of you? <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, the devastation that came from that. In Adam, all die. But there's a new leader. A new Adam. He never sinned. By the way, I think he's the only notable religious leader to ever say that of himself. He never sinned. You got to take that seriously. Wow. Because, you know, if, if I did that, hey, I've never sinned. You know, I wanted to start a cult. About 98% of you could be like, uh, I saw one. And then if my parents were visiting, it would be over. <laughs> Who can say that? And Jesus says, I, if anybody can convict me of sin, go ahead. And they're all like, all they had on him was that he claimed to be God. He never sinned, which means, guess what? What did he never deserve? Death. Why is he dying? As a substitute. And because the righteous one dies for others, guess what he does? He rises. It was inevitable that in Adam all die. And here's the thing. If you're in Christ, I mean, you think of the power of sin. You're, you're born a human. You're going to sin. There's no way out. There's no way around it. It's what we do. It's the inclination of our heart. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But if you're in Christ, there's a new inevitability. The Bible talks about, like, one, one word the Bible uses is an anchor. We're anchored to Jesus. And if he rises because of what he's done, and you trust in him, which means you belong to him, you're in him, you're connected to him, well, it's inevitable. Guess what's going to happen to you? He rose, you will rise. You have to. You will rise. And Adam, sin, death, in Christ, righteousness, resurrection. Resurrection. You'll rise from the dead. It's inevitable. Because this is what God is doing. Look at verses 23 to 28. Verses 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Oh, do you belong to Jesus? Then comes the end. Then comes the end. The end of what? The end of what? It's really just an end with a small e, because it's the end of corruption. 
the end of brokenness, the end of darkness. I mean, can you sense the weight of death that sin has brought in this world and in your life and in my life? It's evil, it's wicked. Sometimes we just ache, we long for, oh God, enough. When Jesus comes, then comes the end of the brokenness, the end of the sin, the end of the, of the evil, the twistedness, the pain, the ugliness, the futility. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. You know, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. I love that. Um, evidently, Jesus has quite a list of enemies. Can you think of some? Spiritual enemies, right? Don't even really know how deep that goes. Um, societal enemies, political enemies cultural enemies, individual enemies. And guess what's going to happen to every single one of Jesus' enemies? They will bow their knee, either in joyful submission or in don't have a choiceness. <laughs> they will bow their knee. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He will defeat every enemy. And you know what the last enemy to be destroyed is? Verse 26. Death. Do you ever think of death as the enemy of God? I mean, we're so used to it being natural. And in this corrupted age, it is natural. And sometimes it's a mercy. But it's normal, right, in this corrupted age. But you realize it wasn't always supposed to be that way. And if you've ever had that longing for, I wish relationships could last forever. I wish health could last forever. I wish we could keep going. I don't want it to end. I don't want us to die. I don't want it to leave. I don't want it to break. You know, thinkers have wondered, hey, if, we, if all of life is just survival of the fittest, everything dies, why is it so that we long not to die when it's the most natural thing ever? And the question is, maybe it's not the most natural thing ever. Maybe the age we're in is artificial. It's corrupted. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Maybe God doesn't like death at all, and maybe it's his enemy, and maybe one day he's going to slam it to the mat. Maybe one day, yes, one day, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. God will prevent, Jesus will present the kingdom to his Father, that everything will be in subjection under him. You see this beautiful interplay between the Son and the Father working together What's the point at the end of 28? As Jesus offers the kingdom to the Father, all enemies subjected, that God may be all in all. And that's heaven. That's the promises of the prophets. One day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That God will be all in all. That, that means that who he is and his beauty and his glory and his holiness will just be drenched over all that is. And, and, and it'll just be explicit and beautiful and awesome. And face to face, God will be all in all. In every way we'll know him. In every way we'll celebrate him. Yes! But that won't happen until he defeats his last enemy, which is death. And when do we know death is defeated? When you and I rise. When you and I rise. So do you see where the resurrection fits in everything God is doing? 
His whole point is to win back his creation again, to own it again. He's from the first sin in, in Genesis 3, God's not all in all. Get him out of the way. We don't want him. But now he's working to bring it back to where he's all in all in every way. And right at the mountaintop of that, he defeats death as his people rise from the dead. So your resurrection and my resurrection, do you see where it fits in God's plan? It's not a sideline thing, oh yeah, what about that? It's right at the pinnacle of God accomplishing his purposes in winning his creation back to himself. That's the point. God being who he is and doing what he does. And we will rise. How committed is God to your resurrection? How, com how committed is the Lord Jesus to bringing you to life again. It is tied with him winning his victory. In other words, if he doesn't resurrect you, he didn't win. If you don't rise from the dead, God did not accomplish his purposes. God's plan is a failure if we don't walk again in new bodies, which means we will. That's the point of the resurrection, who God is and what he's doing. Do you see how huge this is? We need to take these serious beliefs more seriously. Finally, what about the power of the resurrection for our lives today? We've seen that the resurrection is the engine to the Christian faith. It's the point of what God is doing in history. What about today? Well, now we hit some uh, fun verses. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? And I don't know about you, but I'm going... Yeah, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? What do you mean by mentioning people being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, if you're curious, um, you read a couple commentaries and you realize commentators are like, there's theory after theory after theory, plus the, the grammar's a little tough. Um, so it's not absolutely clear what it's talking about. So really, there's two ways to take this. If you're interested, I'll give this just a few minutes. One reason we're confused is there's no theological reason we'd understand as to why this would be a good practice. What are you saved by? You're saved by grace through faith. So um, if somebody I love died and I'm like, oh man, I wish they had believed, hey, just baptize me for them. Well, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit with anything else of what Jesus or the New Testament authors preached. And so maybe we're wondering, well, were the, were the Corinthians doing this for somebody they loved died, they didn't get baptized, let's get baptized for them. Maybe that's what it is. If it is, Paul's only mentioning to say, why do you do this if you don't believe in a resurrection, right? Important for understanding the Bible, just because it's descriptive doesn't mean it's prescriptive. Do you know what I mean? Just because it happens in Scripture somewhere doesn't mean you should do it. I think you knew that already, I hope, right? You ever heard the, the flop and drop devotions, you know, and you, oh, what am I gonna read? I don't know. Oh, Judas killed himself. Woo. Couple more pages. Go and do likewise. <laughs> Just because it's described in the Bible doesn't mean you should do it. So that would be enough. There's one commentator, though, I really like. His last name's Garland, and he says, listen, this grammar, it's a little tough, but he thinks it's obvious that Paul is talking about normal Christian baptism. What does Paul say about our lives before Christ? Ephesians 2, and you were dead, okay? Um, it fits the theology 
that Paul seems to talk about. It really fits the language of the church fathers. They talked about baptism this way. Um, it fits the grammar better, maybe, than some other um, conclusions. Look with me real quick, Romans 6, 3 to 5. Romans 6, 3 to 5. Can you hear what Paul's saying about baptism? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's life now. And then verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. Life now, resurrection life later. Do you see how it's connected to baptism? And so, and I think it fits with the context too. Paul's saying, listen, if there's no resurrection, why do you think you have new life now? Why get baptized at all? The issue of baptism is he died and he rose. My old life to sin dies. I have new life now, and I'm going to have new life later in resurrection. That's the whole, how can you have baptism without resurrection? You can't. Which means, Paul is saying, if you deny the resurrection, you can't really live the life you're supposed to live right now. And this continues. Look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus for our Lord. I die every day. Hey, read First and Second Corinthians. Was it always easy traveling for Paul with this church? Oh, my gosh. If, if I were he, I'd have been like, to heck with y'all. <laughs> Too much suffering. What, what does Paul continually to do? What does he continually do with them? He's willing to suffer, suffer, suffer because he loves them, because he cares about them. Not only that, you read the book of Acts. Was uh, spreading the gospel to the known world uh, a walk in the park for Paul? It's really unbelievable what kind of suffering he went through. Why would you, I mean, you only live once, right? Why would you give your life to one of constant suffering where he says, I die every day? Why would you do that? Verse 32, what do, I, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Sometimes they'd throw Christians, right, into the Colosseum, let them play with the lions for their faith. Why would you do that? Not only that, you and I know, right? Anybody who's been a Christian longer than 30 seconds knows. Jesus is going to call for sacrifice in some way that you weren't quite ready for. You remember that? You know that? It's going to be something he calls for in a relationship, and you're going to go, ah. There's going to be something he calls for financially. Oh, there's going to be a way he calls you to deal with, with suffering or, or something in life. He's going to call you to do something, and you're going to say, ouch. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is he says, you don't, you don't go to Christianity for comfort. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If it's comfort you're looking for, I don't recommend Christianity. What our Lord say? Take up your, your cross. If we don't rise from the dead, why would we want to take up a cross? Why sacrifice for anything? Again, back to our modern day. What does our modern day say about religion? Whatever's good for you, right? Whatever feels right for you, if it gives you comfort, go for it. The thing, uh, so, so then why do we do nice things in that kind of a view of life? What, what all the charity commercials say? It just feels so good. 
It just makes me feel good to give charity. No, grain of truth. Does it make you feel good to give charity, to help somebody out? Sure it does. But do you see what's happening there? They're, they're basing their charity based on a feeling. I got two problems that. Number one, it's selfish. Why did you help that person? Well, it's not because I cared about them. It's because it made me feel good. Do you see the self-love even in the charity? I'm serving you so I can be like, hey, I gave to charity. Is that love? No, that's hogwash. But the second problem with it is this. Okay, it makes me feel good to, to love somebody. Well, here's the big question. What about when it doesn't make you feel good? What about when something else makes you feel better? Or when this person tires you out, when the feeling is gone, because guess what happens to feelings? They go. <laughs> Have you ever had the same feeling for more than like five minutes? They change, they go. Paul says this, this stuff about doing whatever because it feels good is, a, is an insult against common sense. Listen, if there's no resurrection, verse 32, how should we live? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, live for yourself, live for today, live for now. If charity makes you feel good, great, go for it. If abusing others makes you feel good, fine, go for it. It doesn't matter. Live for now. Live for now. What's the, what's the ethic of our um, atheistic Darwinism? What's, how does it all work, right? Survival of the fittest. That's how life works. Should the lion feel compassion about the wounded young wildebeest? I just don't know if it would be right. Or should he say, I'm hungry, I'm stronger, I eat. And that's how life works. If that's the moral of the universe, then what should you do when you want something? Take it. Because it doesn't matter. In a kabillion years, when the sun burns out, no one will remember right or wrong, good or bad. In fact, it was all just a myth we made up. If there's no resurrection. But if there's a resurrection, if there's a resurrection, then you have this truth for your feet that's bigger than any emotion. And you have something bigger than yourself to live for that's worth sacrificing for. It's worth dying for. And you can do it with a smile on your face because you know, guess what? I'm going to rise. I'm going to rise. Having a conviction of your own re resurrection gives you power to live as you should today. It gives you power. Look at the problems that the Corinthians had because of their lack of a conviction about their own resurrection. Verse 33, he says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts, ruins good morals. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. <laughs> Love that. Don't go on sinning. And then 30 says, for some have no knowledge of God. Did you, did you see three problems they have from their lack of conviction about their own resurrection? Number one, bad influences. If you're not convinced about the reality of your own resurrection, how are you gonna live? Do what feels right now. How are you gonna encourage other to live, others to live? Do what feels right now. Is that gonna help you live the Christian life? Is that gonna help you follow Christ? You ever gonna hear the truth about what it really means to devote yourself to him? Can't do it. Second problem, drunken stupor. Well, you know what it means to be drunk. 
You're not connected to reality anymore. Your brains aren't connected to reality. Your brains aren't connected to your body to handle reality. You're, you're, you're dozed out. You shouldn't drive. You can't even handle anything responsible. You're con- disconnected from reality. If you don't have a conviction that you're going to rise from the dead and you live for this life only, it's like you're drunk. It's like you're in a fairy tale. It's like you don't know what life is for. Wake up. Remember, we can take serious things and believe them without taking them very seriously. When we're not treasuring the reality that we will die and we will rise, we cannot live as we should. Drunken stupor, third, no knowledge of God. How does the lack of conviction about your own resurrection rot out your knowledge of God? Do you remember? What's God doing? What's he after? That he may be all in all. What's the last thing to be defeated? Death. When does that happen? Your resurrection. If you're not treasuring the reality of your own resurrection, it's kind of like you've forgotten who your God is and what he's up to. You'll forget that he's totally committed to a happy ending for everything. You forget that he's he's working this place and, and taking it somewhere for a reason. When you don't treasure that he's gonna bring you back to life, it's almost like you don't know him. This is the God who raised Christ from the dead, and he's going to raise you. Do you see? Bad influence. Drunken stupor, no knowledge of God. Now flip it on its head. If you were convinced of your own um, resurrection, what kind of an influence would you be looking for? What kind of an influence would you give to others? What would you say when times are tough? When you're convinced of your resurrection, do you ever say, hey, times are tough, let's give up on God, he's forgiven, he's, he's forgotten us? No, you'd say, listen, God's not done. This is awful right now, but he's not done. Let's go, let's keep going, it's worth it. We're gonna rise again. What about drunken stupor? How's it help you wake up to know there's a resurrection? All of a sudden, the people around you take a new importance. Each person's going to die and have an eternal destiny. And the way they live matters and the way you influence them matters. What are you going to care about? You know, one thing about Paul, blows my mind that, that part in Acts where he's stoned for preaching, right? Left for dead. You remember what he does like the next day? He preaches again. I'd have been like, time to call in vacation. Okay, right? Don't you already have like a martyr resume at that point? Hey, once I was preaching, they almost killed me for it. Everybody's like, whoa, I know. And I'm done, taking a break. Can't do this every day. Paul's like, I can do it every day. Why could he do it every day? Why could he go back for more? There's one reason. It's because he was gonna rise again. Christians, Where are we being cowards right now? Do you see how this connects? We're cowardly when we feel like this life is all there is because we're afraid to lose what we have in this life. That's what makes us cowardly. I I don't want to lose what I have here. And we have epic, insane courage when we know deep in our soul, this life isn't all there is at all. 
I've got another life. Do you see how that gives you courage? I think it was Tim Keller who said, if all your money's in the future, the bank account of the next life, you know, if somebody mugs you and all you have is like 75 cents in your pocket, you're like, here you go. All my bling's at the bank, I'm good. If all your money's on you and they mug you, now you got a problem. They're taking everything. Oh, if they mug you and you got a couple bucks in your pocket, yeah, whatever. That's the difference in mindset when you treasure your own resurrection. What can they really take? What can anyone really take that we're not going to get back in greater measure? Because we're going to rise. That, couldn't that burn in us new courage? So here's what I'd like for you to do if you're a Christian. Ask God to show you maybe places where you're being a little cowardly as to what he might be calling you to do. Could be a lot of things. You, you just, you look, you pray, you ask. And then wonder, suppose, what would it be like to really believe I'm gonna rise and to live with the courage that that could give me? Because here's the point of this passage. Jesus really, literally rose. If you belong to him, you will really literally rise. And that conviction will enable you to really live. Live like you're gonna rise from the dead. Two questions, do you belong to him today? I want this resurrection to belong to all of you the way it belongs to you is if you belong to him. And the good news is you don't, have to, you don't have to climb a mountain or pay for all your mistakes or do anything to belong to him. Here's what you do. You humble your heart and say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this. I need you to save me. You gotta save me. You gotta just look at what he's done. He lived the perfect life for you in your place. He died on the cross for your sins to take those from you. He rose from the dead in victory. If you just trust in him, he's yours. And all he's done is yours. And his resurrection is yours. Belong to him. Trust him today. And if you do, let's live with courage. Let's live with courage as he's called us to live because we're gonna rise. I'm gonna pray, then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper where we celebrate the reality that we do belong to him because of what he's done for us. So let's pray, take up our offering, celebrate the supper together. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you rose. You're alive and you have met with us, and you have changed us. And we pray that you would give us just more a sense of that resurrection life today, that we're new in you. You have saved us. You've given us new identities as children of God, and we have eternal life in you. Lord, convince us, give us joy at the reality that we're gonna rise again, that this life is, is not all there is, that this corrupted place is not the end of the story, but you're gonna win it back. We will rise. And with that great conviction, Lord, help us live with courage through whatever challenges you give us, Lord, whether it's our health or relationships or persecution or whatever, let us know that whatever comes, we will rise and you will be all in all. We thank you for these promises and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.